Hello there. Welcome to Smashing the Ceiling, the podcast that showcases the lives of women who've achieved amazing things in their careers, some who've got a really cool or unusual job, and some who've just had a really interesting life. I'm your host, Naomi Mella, and each week I'll be sitting down with one woman to hear about the ceilings they've smashed through in their lives. The glass ceiling isn't all about corporate boardrooms, international skyscrapers and towering stilettos. Although don't get me wrong, I love a good high heel. There are women breaking down barriers everywhere, shattering stereotypes and forging their own unique and wonderful career paths. We're here to share their stories with you, to let you know how they got where they are and how their mentors, mistakes and motivations have led them to achieve the things they have. We're an independent podcast, so if you'd like to support us, please follow, rate and review wherever you listen. Everyone asks you to do this, I know, but it really does make a difference and we'd love it if you could. Well, I think the worst thing about acting is sometimes you get a really meaty audition. You're like, oh, this is so good. Yeah. Like I had an audition for... I won't say exactly what it was, but for a big Netflix series that has already had a couple of series out and there's, you know, you'd probably know the name of it. Tell me what it is and I'll cut it out. Okay. (laughs) Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So on that little cliffhanger, it's time for round two of my chat with author, podcaster, comedian, actor and deaf activist, Samantha Baines. If you haven't listened to part one, then do go back and listen to that first. Otherwise, this little lot won't make any sense whatsoever. In this episode, we discuss Channing Tatum. Yes, we do finally talk about Sam's starring role in Magic Mike the Musical. The stigma around divorce and how it turns out people actually do want to listen to a podcast about it. And to start with, how Sam mistook an off-the-cuff invite to write a children's book. Here we go. So tell us about your children's books, because they have deaf protagonists. You mentioned that just briefly. How did you get started with children's books? And um, tell us about what you've written so far and, and about your characters. So as many things in my life, it was sort of an accident. It's like the theme of this podcast, basically, is like women with accidental careers. Well, also, I've just I think I've learned over the time to go with the flow. I always had a plan before. And what I've learned is plans don't work for me like stuff just happens and then if I feel excited I'll just go with it my mum always talks about kicking at the slightly open door yeah and I love that it's like you see a little chink and you're like oh that looks fun I'll go through there yeah well it's like being that nosy kid isn't it you're like oh the door's open actually I was um a flower girl at one of my second cousins because I'm Irish so we have a huge family one of my second cousin's weddings and they were having their wedding photos done in the living room and the door was slightly ajar and I stuck my head in to see what was going on and they have a wedding photo of them posing looking at very in love with me with my head sticking out through the door so that is like my thing in life at least you didn't stick your head around the door when they were in the act of consummating their marriage <laughs> oh, it would be weird if they did that in the living room at their wedding reception but sure um so so yeah i stick i stick my head through doors to see what's going on um so I started working with RNID. I started talking to more of the deaf community and kind of integrating myself. And I realized at that time that personally, at that time, I hadn't seen any like media films, read any books with main characters who are deaf. Um, and I thought, well, that's one of the things that add to me feeling different and othered. So wouldn't it be awesome 
if someone could write a book like that. And my first idea was to write an adult's book, which might be happening soon. Ooh, is that an exclusive? That is an exclusive. <laughs> uh, to write an adult's nonfiction book about hearing loss. So I went to this like book event to find out more about books because I'd never written a book before and I didn't know how the industry worked. So I met these incredible people who ran a children's publisher called Knights Of and they were brilliant and very funny. And I kept in touch with them on Twitter, even though I told them at the event that I didn't want to write a children's book. And then on Twitter, I said, you're cool. Let's like work together. Let's do a book, a children's book. And they were like, well, what would it be about? And and I had this idea about I wanted, you know, deaf people to see themselves represented. So I just came up with an idea and I, I liked space and my stand-up shows had always been about space and science. So I was like, this little girl like goes to space or something to do with that. And she talks to aliens and her hearing aid translates alien languages. And they were like, okay, cool, write it. And in my head, that was an informal commission which is not true. But I was like, oh, I've essentially been commissioned to write a book. Like no money was exchanged. There was no contracts. They were just like, write it. And I found out at my book launch um, when I spoke to them, they were like, we say write it to everyone. But the amount of people that actually write it and then send it back is very few. But I was like, I thought you were like, let's publish this. So anyway, I went away and wrote it and then sent it to them. And then we kind of workshopped it a little bit because it was, you know, my first book. It actually started, I wrote the whole thing in rhyming couplets because I'd been really into poems before. And now I look back, I'm like, I didn't believe in my writing ability enough. Okay. Um, so I, I thought I had to like put a thing or a gimmick or something. Not that, you know, rhyming couplets is a gimmick for everyone, but for me, it was like to shadow my writing. Um, because I was like, my writing on its own isn't good enough. So it needs to be like, yeah, something new, um, and exciting. Um, and then they were like, maybe try and write it with just your words that don't rhyme. And so I tried that. Because what I was going to ask was actually about when you write children's books, when, they, when you read a book to a child, sometimes you think, God, these are so simple. Anyone can do that. But actually, <laughs> I think writing a children's book is a very, very unique skill. How did you sort of know how long it should be, how complicated it should be for the age group that you're targeting? Or did that all kind of organically come a bit later? Sort of how did you begin? Yeah, so that's one of the hardest things. So I don't write picture books. Um, and my first thought was, oh, a picture book would be really easy because it's only like 20 pages. <laughs> Actually, it's so hard to write so a picture book. Yeah, well, that's what I was thinking. Because yeah. you have to get all of the story and the excitement and, you know, the funny into such a short amount of space. But I don't write picture books. I write middle grade books. So they're for like six, seven to 12 year olds. So I knew that it was going to be a middle grade book because that's what Nights Off publish. And so I knew I was aiming for, at the beginning, you know, I said to them, like, well, what age should the character be in the book? Because normally the character in a children's book is slightly older than the children who'll read it because they want to look up to someone. So it's normally like at least a year older than probably your main demographic. Gosh, we introduced aspiration at an early age. <laughs> I know. I'm like, why? Anyway, so my first book, Harriet versus the Galaxy, I think Harriet's 10, just turning 11. And it's for, yes, yeah, six to 12 year olds. 
So I knew that that age group, but obviously I'm not a mum. I don't have kids. Um, but I was married when I first started writing it and my ex's stepsister was about that age. So I remember reading first drafts to her and her brother and like seeing what made them giggle and stuff like that. And I think that's really useful, obviously, because I was writing a comedy book. I wanted it to be funny as well. Um, so yeah, Harriet versus the galaxy is about Harriet who has hearing aids that translate alien languages and her and her gran protect the earth from aliens. And, uh, Harriet has a non-binary best friend called Robin. And the reason for that is I was told by someone in the industry that if I was writing a book about a little girl, that she needed to have a male best friend, otherwise boys wouldn't read it. And that really annoyed me. Um, um, so I was like, I'll give her a best friend, but how about I make them non-binary? And at the time I was following Jamie Windust on Instagram, which I still do. And Jamie mentions me in their book, which is very nice, but I was really inspired by their campaigning and they were looking at kind of passport forms and the fact that gender is so binary on so many forms and, and I just thought, oh, it'd be lovely to have some representation in the book. And obviously, I don't have an experience of being non-binary. So I made sure that we had a sensitivity reader, which was Jamie in the end, to kind of go through and, and make sure it had been handled in a way that they felt was kind of true. So yeah, Robin is non-binary and a child, which has created a little bit of backlash from a few people. Um, I got a one-star review on Amazon, which is actually like my proudest review ever because it says hidden LGBTQ plus promotion. Um, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, but it's not hidden. Like I'm welcome. And I'm bisexual myself. So, you know, I was very, I was very happy with that one star review, but, um, no, it's been great. And the, you know, the book came out, it's illustrated by Jessica Marie Flores, who's a deaf comedian in the States. And her illustrations are incredible. I cried when I saw them. They are beautiful for anyone who doesn't follow Sam on Instagram, which you should, by the way, because she's great and Twitter too. Uh, she's very good at Twitter. You, you can see them all on there and they are, they're gorgeous books and for kids to see and read and just enjoy I think as well because reading when you're a child you have to love it don't you I know and that what I love is so many parents get in touch of like my kid didn't like reading and then they read this book and it was like an entry because it's written in first person so I've written it as Harriet so that so the language is very simple because I wanted to make it very accessible for lots of ages and my my later book the night the moon went out the language is slightly more advanced so it's more for like eight to nine year olds but I wanted Harriet to be super accessible so that children can read it on their own as well as re reading it with a parent to help them but yeah the illustrations are incredible and I feel like Jessica added so much of the comedy and the illustration. So what was really fun about the book is in between the chapters, I've created these like this space book with information about planets in this strange world of the solar system that exists uh, in Harriet's world. And so I got to create very random, uh, weird planets. And so one's called Ron Baddy Bum Bum and it's with aliens with two bottoms, one for talking and one for farting and the farting helps them move around the planet. And, um, just stuff like that. Like it's so silly, but kids giggle so much at it. And fart jokes are like the absolute best for kids, aren't they? I think they're funny. Um, and even like the 12 year olds, they're like, I'm, you know, I'm too cool for like fart jokes. But 
they have a little giggle when I go and talk to them in school. So they're like, <laughs> bum, bum. Um, you know, I'm an adult and it makes me giggle. So that's been super fun. And also so many schools have bought the book because they have a child with a hearing aid in their class. And then the class reads the book together and it starts conversations about hearing loss and hearing aids, which I love. Uh, and then the second book, The Night the Moon Went Out, is about a little girl called Anaira who has hearing aids and she has to take them out at night to charge them. But it makes the dark even scarier because you can't see and you can't hear. And one night the moon goes out and she has to go on a journey to turn it back on in the dark uh, with the help of a talking owl. Because why wouldn't you have a talking owl in your book? Um, and maybe realizes that dark isn't so scary after all. And that's basically because I am still scared of the dark. That book came about. That's perfectly acceptable. Perfectly acceptable. Um, so you touched briefly there on having been married once, which just segues us very neatly onto your podcast, um, which I think we did mention earlier is called The Divorce Social. You know, obviously you are divorced. I got divorced. You got divorced and you started a podcast. Uh, let's expand on that a little bit. What led you into podcasting? You, t- you said briefly about the pandemic giving you a bit more time. Yeah, so I've had podcasts before. I used to do a show on Hoxton Radio and then that became a podcast called Baines Plus One. And then I do work a lot on the radio. So I do BBC Five Live and BBC Radio London, Radio Two and stuff. So I'm I'm very used to kind of audio as a medium. And obviously having a hearing aid, I thought I wouldn't be able to do that anymore. Um, but I provide transcripts for all of my podcast episodes so people can read along uh, as well as listen in case they you know, um, feel like they're missing anything. And I try and make the audio as clear as possible with no background noise. You know, I don't, I don't record out and about in London, um, which I think is a really cool thing that people do on the radio. But I know for people with hearing loss like myself, it makes it harder to hear. And I, I do still listen to the radio myself and podcasts. Um, but it is useful when there's uh, transcripts. So, the divorce social came about because I got divorced and I didn't know anyone else my age uh, or, or sort of in my world who was divorced that I could talk about it to. And I just really wanted to talk to someone else who was going through what I was going through. And I thought a podcast was a really great excuse for making people talk to me. So it started off as quite like a selfish thing. And I remember people said to me, like in the uh, podcast world, they're like, I don't think anyone will listen to a podcast where two people talk about their divorces. Turns out they were wrong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they were wrong. Um, but it really did start off as a, I just want to do it kind of for me. And maybe six people who've been divorced will listen and feel less alone. And that's fine. So I just did it, started it during the pandemic from my spare room. And I thought, well, this is a nice project for me to do. You know, it had no budget. No, it was just me doing everything. And then lots of people started listening to it. Um, and, you know, and also it had no marketing because you see some of these big podcasts that like, you know, have banners up on the tube and in, in London on a roundabout. You know, I had none of that. I was just me tweeting and Instagramming like, I've started a podcast. Um yeah, and so lots. I think we had a hundred thousand listens quite early on, and I thought, well, whoa, lots of people want to talk about divorce or listen, um, which obviously I was told they didn't. Um, so I was quite surprised. Um, and then it kind of became this lovely little community of people. Now we have a Patreon where people can support the podcast um, 
from two pounds a month. I try to make it super affordable, but at least for that two pounds a month, they get access to this like chat room we have through Discord, the app. And it means that you know, without me having to be there, everyone else can have conversations and share divorce experiences. And that's sort of really important to me as well that, you know, we all just feel less alone. And divorce is such a huge thing to go through. You know, mine was awful and amazing. Like I cried face down on the floor. I think I said this on Loose Women because um, I went on to talk about the podcast on there, but I, I was crying face down on my kitchen floor because I'm always on the floor when I'm crying. I don't know why. And my cat came over and sniffed me and I thought, oh, the cat's coming to comfort me. She sniffed me and then walked away. And that was one of my, my like lowest. I was like, even the cat doesn't want me anymore. Um and my divorce was, you know, amicable in inverted commas in that we both decided together to get divorced. So, and it was still super painful, but it was also great. And I had this sexual explosion, which I talk about a lot on the podcast and had a very fun time um, and came out as bisexual after my divorce and, you know, started dating people of all genders. And yeah, I feel like now I'm only two years in, but I've done a lot of series because it's a lot of people to talk about divorce. It's a lot of people. And also I love getting messages from listeners and, and people do message me and, and, you know, they've said stuff like it's saved their lives, which, oh, I just like touches my heart bones. Um, because that was totally, you know, it, I think it saved me in some respects. And the idea that it could just comfort someone in that really hard time is so important. So I feel like I've just done loads of episodes because I don't want to like let anyone down. And tell me how, how old were you when you got divorced? So I'm really bad at dates of things. So I just sort of say 30 for everything. Yeah, fair enough. But it was around then, like I got my hearing aid and I got divorced around a fairly, like within a year or two years of each other. So I'm 35 now. I've been separated for four years. So it must have been like 30, 31. But I've only been divorced officially for like two. Okay. And because I, I always feel from chatting to other friends who've been through it, they talk a bit about the sort of shame of divorce still being quite prevalent and quite pervasive in society that it's not acceptable for people to say, we were great once, but now we're not. And actually, maybe we would be happier, better, more successful, either on our own or potentially with other people. Do you think that's changing? Because I, I feel that's like a very old-fashioned narrative. And the fact that we still can't, or we're just about getting no-fault divorce in this country, is bonkers to my mind, that people can't just say, it just isn't working, let's go our separate ways. There has, it has to be somebody's fault. It seems odd yeah so no fault divorce came in this year and I think a lot of people have an issue with it because when they're like it was someone's fault and I want everyone to know I think the idea of the branding of no fault divorce I think the name's just bad because it's not like it is no one's fault I think the idea that one person cannot want to be in the marriage anymore and that means you end the marriage is a good thing because, you know, someone shouldn't be held into something that they don't want to be in. So I think it's, you know, I feel like the PR people for that law should have called it something else of just like modern divorce law or something. It's law though, it's not modern. Yeah, no, never. 
there's lots of work still to be done with the whole kind of legal procedure around divorce. But yeah, it's still seen as a failure. And I think that's why people told me that no one would listen to my podcast. And, you know, people who aren't divorced are still very confused sometimes by my podcast because they're like, what? what? Why are you talking about that? Because it's, it's still a taboo, even though it happens to, you know, one in two marriages end in divorce. Um, but we don't talk about it and we don't, or we talk about it in passing, like, or in an article, it's like divorced comedians, Samantha Baines or whatever. It's a label. Yeah. But I'm giving someone, you know, 50 minutes or however long one of my podcast episodes is normally around that 50 minutes to actually talk about it. And what's amazing is, you know, people cry, people laugh. Um, and at the end, they're always like, wow, thank you. No one's given me space to just talk about that experience because you talk about it with your friends and obviously they ask, but then you don't want to feel like you're boring them. And that's normally in that raw time when it's just happened. But looking back on it and having someone just go, so just tell me. And I think that's the, you know, I've had lovely comments um, about my interview style and I do love interviewing and talking to people but actually what I do is just go you have space off you go and then every so often kind of steer them if they're going off into a tangent about like H&M skirts which has happened because the sizing's weird um but you know it's and that's kind of what I love because everyone's story is rooted in the same emotions, but so different. And we end up talking about such different things. So we start off with divorce and we cover a lot of divorce, but, you know, we talk about freedom or overcoming challenges or parenting or so many different subjects we cover. And that's, that's what I really enjoy about it. Mm. I love that about podcasting is that long form space to give people chance to talk. It's like the best thing about podcasting, I think, is that you can just sit down together, you have an hour or whatever, and it's like, you can just chat for an hour and people can just talk about things. And actually that is a real gift to give people, particularly in the sort of space that you're in, I think, as well. Especially in the media when so often I'm doing like a radio interview or like Loose Women, and I love doing those things, but you get, I got eight minutes you know, of course, because they have to fit lots of things in the program. But like, you can't really get your life story in eight minutes. I could try and I do try. But that's why like this, our chat today is lovely because like we've gone from right the beginning. uh, We haven't even talked about Channing Tatum. I know we're coming on to that. Listeners, do not do not worry. (laughs) I am not leaving out Channing Tatum. I was listening to Laura Whitmore's podcast last week and she was interviewing Pandora Sykes and they were talking about this thing of like live when you've got a producer and you were going, go to the news, go to the news. You know, and you're just like, okay. You're like, no, we're just getting to a really good bit in the interview. And it's like, you have to go to the pips. <laughs> and if you crash the pips, you are a BBC pariah. So let's, let's come back to Channing Tatum. I was, before I do, however, I was just going to touch briefly on uh, coming out because you mentioned you'd had a sexual revolution, which is amazing. Um, how has that been for you? And how, in terms of work opportunities and things in your career, has that opened doors for you? Have you kind of, how have you found entering another new community on top of entering the deaf community as well? Yeah, I think I always felt queer, but because I was I was in a relationship with my ex-husband for nearly a decade. So I didn't 
I guess, really have this space to explore those feelings. Like he knew that I was also attracted to other genders. So he was aware of it, but it wasn't really something I'd ever properly explored. You know, when I was young at uni on stuff, I'd like snogged women and different things, but I'd never really come out. And that actually why I watched Heartstopper, the TV show, and thought it was incredible for the by representation because it is that thing of I'd be dating a guy and I'd be enjoying that and fancying the guy and then I'd feel like I fancied this woman but I'd think well I can't be gay because I definitely fancy that guy so so am I gay and then and it, it was like there were two binaries in sexuality of like you're gay or you're straight and that's it and um, I guess I didn't really know about bisexuality or if I did, I didn't think it was a thing that I could be. I don't know why, but it didn't really come into my psyche. So I'd question like, oh, am I gay? And then I'd be like, well, no, because I, I do fancy this person and they happen to be a man. So that had happened when I was younger. And then it was when I got divorced and I started dating again and going on dating apps which I'd never had before and all this excitement and that's actually when I was in Magic Mike I had my first relationship like proper relationship with a woman and it was it was funny because she said you know she said I was a straight girl and I remember being with her and thinking well I'm not though am I because we're together um and but even you know even when that relationship ended I was still like, oh no, I'm straight. And like, that was a one-off. And it, and it was again, this like binary of like, well, I have to be gay or not. And I remember sort of testing the idea that I might be bi. And I even mentioned it to some people I know who were in the queer community themselves. And they were like, you're not bisexual. And I, I was constantly, I don't know why, but I was listening to other people. And I was like, well, no, I'm not then. I'm not, I'm, I'm just straight. Like, um, but it kept coming up in my mind. And and also it, it it's not like it was a, an issue for me, but I sort of wanted an answer. <laughs> I guess it was sort of like hearing loss in a way of like, I just wanted to know one way or the other. And I was like, why do I keep questioning? I'd keep making the decision. No, I must be straight then. I must be straight. And again, I think it was what it was watching Feel Good, Mae Martin, who ironically, so when I was in Vinegar Knickers, our second year in Edinburgh, May was in the uh, the same room as us in Edinburgh before we were on. And so we always used to like, she'd finish her show and we'd be like, how did it go while we were setting up our show? Anyway, so I watched Feel Good and that had, you know, her partner was exploring whether she was bisexual or not. And, and then I was lying in bed one night and I just said out loud, I'm bisexual. And then I was like, yeah, that's it. Of course, that's it. That's what it is. Oh my God, finally, I know what this kind of internal conflict means. Um, and and I'd said before, kind of in interviews and stuff, I'd hit, I'd been like, I also date other genders. But I'd never said the word bisexual. Um, and, and obviously my friends knew and I discussed it with them. But it was Pride Month 
And I felt, I just felt like I wanted to say it, but I was so scared. I had this post prepared, which was like a picture of me and it said bisexual. It was like literally the most like, I am bisexual post because it said the word above my head and there was like a rainbow in the background. And I was like, I really want to post this. And I was scared and I was like scared about what the reaction would be, which now seems strange, but I was. And so I waited like right until the end of Pride Month to post it on social media because it just felt important to say it out loud. And I thought, no one will care, will they? It's just going to be for me as a thing. And I might get like a few likes or people being like, yay. But I, I honestly didn't think it would get any attention. It was it was for me to say it publicly. And then I put it on Instagram and uh, Twitter and then sort of went a bit viral, especially on Twitter. I remember that post, yeah. And then um, like thousands and thousands of people were like liking and retweeting and commenting. And, and then I ended up being asked to write an article about it for The Telegraph, I think it was. So it became this thing. And, and also they were like, tell us about coming out as bisexual like later in life, which I was very happy to do because I was like, oh, I'm out. Yay. I want the representation to be there. But I was also like, I've just come out. Like, I don't really know. Like, I know in my experience of like, but I don't know what being like out and bisexual is like because it's just happened. Because I've literally just done it. It's also weird because then after I came out, I then was seeing a man and it started this feeling in me of, oh my God, I need to snog a woman now or I need to snog a non-binary person. Otherwise, I won't be bisexual anymore. And it was like a tally or something. And I felt this pressure to be like, be like publicly, openly, obviously bisexual. I had to let go of that a little yeah. bit and actually, yeah. you know, reading material from um, other people who identify as bisexual and stuff like that about, you know, you could be in a long-term straight facing relationship, which obviously I was, and be bisexual. And that's allowed and allowing it for yourself, but also saying out loud that's allowed, I think is really useful for other people. So it's it's exciting. Um, and just to wrap up, because we've been dangling this fucking carrot all the way through the interview. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Channing Tatum and Magic Mike. Um, so for those of you who don't know, Sam was the MC for the Magic Mike London show. Uh, and yeah, talk to us how that came about. Tell us about Channing. Talk about Magic Mike. Let's hear it. I mean, what a show for anyone who hasn't seen it. Yeah. And I was getting divorced at the time. God. So it was kind of like the time to be the MC of Magic Mike Live. You know, me, 15 semi-naked professional dancers on stage doing dances, having a fun time. Yeah, it was very fun. It was, it was, it was a funny one because I'd done stage stuff obviously a lot with live comedy up until that point. And I'd done a lot of acting on screen, you know, like the BBC comedies and the crown and, and all, and, you know, silent witness and stuff like that. So drama and comedy. And then it was sort of like an amalgamation of everything I've done. And also I, I, um, collaborated with Channing on the script for the London show. So also my writing came into it. So it was kind of like everything in my career came together for one show, which was really fun. So it was kind of a stand up acting hybrid. Um, there was a script, but I was allowed to ad lib with the audience as oh. well. And, and I'd written some of the jokes in the script. Yeah, I was performing, it was 10 shows a week. So I was there six nights a week, which was actually amazing at the time because I was getting divorced and I needed something to focus on. And that took up all my time, which was great. 
to begin with. Um, and I did it for 18 months. God, that must have been tiring though. Oh my God. When I stopped, I slept for so long. Like, I, bet. I was like, I'm too old. But at the time, I, you know, I was only 32 or whatever. West End performers have a whole new respect in my eyes because the stamina. I mean, we had two shows most nights and one day on Saturdays, we had three shows. God. And, and I guess for me, you know, I did do a dance routine, but I wasn't dancing the whole way through, but I was pretty much on stage throughout. There weren't any bits where I could go and have a 15 minute break. I was constantly at the side of the stage waiting for my cue to come back on. And I was the only person who spoke in the show. I had to host. The, it was like having your own party every night of the or week. Or three times a day. Yeah. Um, so it was, it was really fun. And it was such a pleasure to work with Channing because he's an actor and he was directing the show. He just really got it because he'd been, obviously been in the acting seat. He's a very like generous director and about your process and what you want to bring to the show as opposed to just telling you exactly what to do. And he's a lovely man and he laughs at my jokes. So he obviously has great taste. He obviously does. Yeah, it was really fun, but I was very tired. Yeah, I can imagine. I often think that being an actor, uh, very glamorous, but it's really hard work. It sounds so wonderful, but actually the reality of those situations is often quite different. And it's something I've talked about a lot with women on this podcast, that when you have this very cool sounding job, when you start to dig into it, you think, yeah, it is great. It's amazing. It's so cool that you were the MC of that. But it, that's, it's almost like doing a breakfast show on the radio. It's, it, it kind of has a finite life because otherwise you just fall over in a heap at the end of it all. Yeah. And, and also I think because it's a very sexy show, everyone was like, oh, it must be so sexy backstage. And it was actually like the opposite because <laughs> we were all sweaty and tired. It was like the least sexy, like there's people just wiping their bits, like including me because I had to do a dance routine on stage with the boys. And then straight after that routine, the guy playing Magic Mike had to slide across the stage and put his face in my crotch. Takes a little bit of coordination that I would imagine. Yeah. yeah, but also I'd just done a dance on stage and at the beginning of the show I wore two outfits over the top of one another because I had a costume change. So that was sweaty. Um, so that was, you know, spraying perfume downstairs a lot. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I feel very privileged to be able to do all the things that I've done. So, you know, you take the good with the bad. But yeah, it's not, it's definitely not as glamorous as it looks. And, and also, you know, you messaged me today, this morning, just saying that I, I'd done really well in all of the industries that I've, you know, done stuff in, which was very nice. But it doesn't feel like that when you're, you know, people see your wins, but they don't see your fails. You know, like I have two children's books out and I've been very lucky with children's books that I've never had a book that I've pitched for children's that hasn't happened. But I have had adult books that I've pitched that haven't happened. And I've had TV shows that I've written a pilot for and, and then haven't happened. So there are sort of lots of, of difficult bits within that. And also as an actor, I always think you failure becomes oh your friend because the audition process is brutal. Like you know, having to repeatedly, you know, and no actor gets everything they go for, no, no matter who you are, even if you're Channing Tatum. Um, you know, well, he might. Well, maybe he does. He's very nice. Um, but, you know, it's, it's that thing of you're constantly prostrating yourself in front of other people to judge you and decide whether you're fit or not 
you know, fit for the purpose, as it were. Well, I think the worst thing about acting is you, sometimes you get a really meaty audition. You're like, oh, this is so good. Yeah. Like I had an audition for, I won't say exactly what it was, but for a big Netflix series that has already had a couple of series out and there's, you know, you'd probably know the name of it. Tell me what it is and I'll cut it out. Okay. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. For a regular in that series, right? So big, meaty series. And then I didn't get it. But then I will see the series on Netflix. So I will see the person who did get it and the way that they do it differently. And that's like nice in some respects because you're like, oh, they're totally different to me. Like they did it in this style. So I get that they weren't looking for me. But it's also like every time you watch it, you're like, I could have been doing that. And and it's And it's like, Oh, woe is you. Just don't watch those things. But then over the years, there's a lot of things that you wouldn't be able to watch. In most other jobs, you don't go for a job that you don't get and then see that person who got your job doing it over and over again. And then, and then there'd be like 10 of those. Yeah, it's a funny one, but I've, I'm very lucky to have had some brilliant auditions and also some brilliant jobs yeah if you want to um hear more about failure one episode of this podcast you should go and listen to is jamie coleman way back in 2019 i think it was um she is a trauma surgeon and she talked about the impact of failure when you're a surgeon and she is brilliant talking about failure and making failure your friend in order to progress in your career so if anyone's interested in digging more a bit into that then do go and listen to that episode i feel like as a comedian you have to make failure your friend because so many jokes just don't work and you'd cry all the time. Someone said to me recently, which is something I'm taking on in business and in life in general, is to be more scientist. So if you treat it like an experiment, whatever you're doing, you have a hypothesis, you test your hypothesis, you assess your results and you draw your conclusions. And if the science experiment doesn't work, that's not a reflection on you. The experiment just didn't work. And so you depersonalize it a bit. Well, I guess the experiment always works, doesn't it? But you just then decide that you're going to do a different experiment or you stick with that experiment. And I guess, you know, for me, that what people might say is the ultimate failure, divorce, which I do not agree with is not a failure. But I, in some people's view failed at marriage but then I made a very successful podcast out of it so my failure turned into a win I would not call that a failure at all and I think the, uh, the attitude of divorce being a failure is one that we definitely need to get past and you are very much helping that I'm so grateful for your time this has been an incredible interview is there anything you wanted to say about your career before we wrap up I always kind of throw the floor open to guests at the end to be like do you have any words of wisdom pieces of advice oh. what's your biggest learning point all the general cheese go with the flow is my biggest learning point and that doesn't mean don't have a plan or dreams or goals but don't I, I think I've been offered things in the past and sort of resisted them because I thought well that's not in my plan um, and actually some of those have been the best things I've done and also I've done things that are in my like one big goal that I wanted to do like this one show in particular that I've always wanted to do and then I did it and I was like oh I've done it now and it didn't feel as momentous as I always thought it was going to be and I don't know if I want to do that all the time um so you know being flexible is the key 
and not with your legs in a yoga way, like with your career and your thoughts. Um, and also everything's going to be okay always in any situation. It, things feel so often like they're the end of the world and everything's falling on top of you. Even in the smallest thing, you know, I have anxiety. So, you know, that happens to me a lot where I'm like, everything's awful. Even though like one person said, no, I'm not going to share a picture of that on my Instagram or whatever it is, a really small thing. And you're like, this is the worst thing in the world. This is just a sign that everything else is failing, but everything's always going to be okay. You know, have a sit down, have a cup of tea, go out in a green space and it'll be okay. Um, Sam Baines, thank you so, so much. This has been a total joy. Mark is giving me the thumbs up. Let's just stop the recording. Hold on. That's all for this week. You'll find all the links you need to everything we've discussed in this episode in the show notes that will be sitting right there in front of you on whatever podcast app you use. So do just have a look in there if you want more info or have a sneaky peek at the socials. If you've enjoyed this episode, please just share it wherever you can on your own social media. And if you found the podcast interesting or useful, then please do tell a friend. We're always keen for new listeners. If you can find it in your heart to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or give us a shout out on your socials, then I would love you very much as it helps others to find us. We're on Instagram and Facebook at The Skylark Collective and our website is www.skylarkcollective.co.uk. See you next time.